Hey, and welcome back to the history of China. Last week, we watched the rise of two new players in the game, or characters in the story, or what have you, in the form of the Wu State and a native of there in Suanzhou. Yes, as we went over last week, there are some serious questions about whether or not Suanzhou was a real person. Did he really exist? And someone asked what I really thought: Was he real, or was he not? And while yeah, I like to defer to Sima Qian every now and then, I will sort of break away from him here. How much so, though? Does that mean I think Suanzhou didn't really exist at all? Not really. I'll always have my doubts about him existing, and the fact is that no one really has the true answer. So what I say or what Sima Qian says doesn't really matter because none of us really know. But that doesn't matter. But I think it makes a lot of sense for him to have existed, but did not write the art of war entirely on his own. It's most probable to me, at least, that a core foundation of the book was written by Suanzhou or the Suanzhou character. However, after his death, I believe that there definitely were additions and expansions on it made by his followers or any other military thinkers of the time. Because there's no denying that he said things in the book that were not available to him at the time, but that doesn't mean he entirely didn't exist. Because just like Confucius, while he may have had all the main ideas and all the core ideas laid out fully, that doesn't mean he necessarily wrote them all down in a cohesive work. And instead, that work was elaborated upon by followers. While there may be lots of questions about his existence. There is no question that the art of war was real, and it was from the Eastern Zhou Dynasty, and there is no question of its impact and its importance. And there is also no question that the Wu State in 506 BC, out of nowhere, has just become the most powerful state in the Eastern Zhou Dynasty, rendering it the de facto hegemon state. So, without further ado, the history of China. Episode Twelve: War on the Horizon. After the Battle of Baoju in 506 BC, the Wu State, under the leadership of King He Liu and with the guidance of Suanzhou, or without it if he wasn't real, has become the most dominant state of the day. They had made their mark by thrashing the once powerful and pesky state of Chu, Chu. But like everything in the ancient world, productivity and growth are viewed literally by if your state is expanding or contracting. If you are expanding, i.e., you are conquering others, then great, your state is viewed at that point in history as being a productive and improving state. But if you are stagnant in the conquering department, or worse yet, you're losing some territory, you are chalked down as not being a productive and/or an improving state. So the Wu State just conquered the massive and once powerful Chu State, because well, the Wu State just annihilated them. But King He Liu was most likely sitting back and thinking, "What now? Their army was strong." And they had momentum, so he's probably sitting back, thinking, "Well, what's our next move?" 
And while the Battle of Boju may have been decisive and cleared the road to the Chu state capital at the city of Ying, there was still some mopping up to do. Fu Gai, the general who had initiated the Battle of Boju in the first place, and yeah, initiated said battle against the wishes of King He Liu of the Wu state, began to pursue the scattered and discombobulated Chu army. He stalked and shadowed the retreating force until they got to the Qingfa River. But still, Fu Gai did not pounce, and he did not finish the job he had started at Boju. Nope, instead, Fu Gai of the Wu State decided to wait. And he decided to wait until half of the Chu army had crossed the river. Once about half of them made it across, well, yeah, then he pounced. Did Fu Gai win this battle against half of an already battered and retreating force? Well, surprisingly, just kidding, there's no surprise. Of course he won. And it wasn't long until Fu Gai and the Wu army caught up to the other half of the Chu state army. And this is where Fu Gai gets utterly cocky and begins to just toy with the remaining Chu forces. But how does he toy with them? Well, this is what he does. He waits until these totally bare bones and ragtag remaining Chu soldiers sit down to eat. Food is made, and it's ready to be served. But before anyone in the Chu army could even think about finishing their meal, Fu Gai and the Wu state army pounces. The Chu soldiers flee, but then Fu Gai and the Wu army simply sit down and eat the fresh and still hot food the Chu soldiers were about to eat. And yes, after the Wu soldiers finished their food, they continued their pursuit of the Chu army, they eventually cornered them at the Yongshu River, and then defeated them again. So yeah, there's effectively no Chu army anymore, and the Wu had swept the Chu state in the best of eight series, going 5-0. What was the trophy for winning all of this, though? What do they get? Yeah, the city of Ying, the capital of the Chu state. But there needs to be a clarification, though, before I continue. Nanghua, who I'd mentioned last week, was not the king of the Chu state. No, that's my mistake. He was instead just one of their more powerful generals. And he wanted glory, so he tried to fight the Wu state early on, all alone. And as we know, he burned up and died at the Battle of Boju. But here's what's interesting. Nanghua was supposed to take up defensive positions. But as we probably heard, he didn't do that, and instead he got antsy thinking that he was simply being tied down to prevent himself from getting any glory. But yeah, he died. Shen Yingshu was the general that Nanghua thought was hoarding all the glory. Shen Yinshu of the Chu state was going in to thrash the Wu state coastline while Nanghua, you know, held it down at home. But again, Nanghua really did not hold it down at home, and he lost the capital too. So Shen Yinshu came back and met the Wu forces at the Yongshu River, where the Chu forces had just been finished off. The fact is, the capital was taken, and the war for all intents and purposes was over. 
But Shen Yin Shu of the true state decided to engage anyway. Because, hey, literally, what was there to lose at this point? And he fought three battles against the Wu forces. And get this. He won all three. Consolation wins at that. But still, victories. But after the third victory against another Wu state detachment, it is clear to us now that all of these victories he had just had were of the Purik type. They did nothing to really push the Wu army as a whole in any direction, and Shen Ying Shu himself got wounded once in each battle. So, you know, he's wounded three times now. And before a fourth victory could be attempted, Shen Ying Shu, wounded as heck, saw the writing on the wall and had one of his officers kill him and ship his head back home. So by now, King Zhao of the Chu State, who, my bad, was the actual king of the Chu State, had fled the capital. And Wu Zixu, who was a traitor of the Chu State, who had advised for the Wu State after his family had been entirely killed by the old Chu king named King Ping. And what does he do? Well, on his return to the old capital, he exhumed said king's body and lashed it 300 times for the murder of his mother and his brother. It was seemingly all over for the true state. The capital was taken, and heck, the last king of your state just got exhumed and lashed 300 times? The living king is gone, the army is crushed, but some, some refused to give up the good fight. An official for the Chu state, a man named Sheng Baoxu, went around China looking for someone to help him and help the Chu state. Obviously, yeah, he was not going to go to the Jin state because, well, yeah, the Jin state was thrilled that the Chu state was, you know, falling apart at the seams. But Shen Baoxu went to the backwater state of Qin, Q-I-N. He pleaded with them day in and day out. But the Duke of the Qin State, Duke Ai, spelled A-I, was not having any of it. He was not going to help the true state. So for all of the next week, Shen Baoshu, the true state official, cried in the Qin Palace courtyard after being told no by them. Because after being told no, it was really all over for the true state, which, yeah, was his home. But after watching this man cry for seven full days, Duke Ai of the Qin State was moved by this man's devotion and love of his state and decided, you know what? Screw it. I'll send troops to assist what is left of the Chu State. And in 505 BC, it is recorded that the Qin and Chu armies began winning battles against the Wu State. And no, these were not small skirmishes at that. These were legitimate victories. But look, calling this a 50-50 split with the Qin and Chu is laughable. It was, yeah, majority Qin, with literally, and I mean literally, the remaining military age males of the Chu state. Fu Gai had wiped out all of Nanghua's forces, and the other forces had just been defeated in Pyrrhic victories. But the Qin and Chu victories were never decisive. But Fu Gai, who, by the way, I forgot to mention, is the brother of King Hu Liu of the Wu state, 
decided it was time to make a move while his brother was busy dealing with the new Qin and Chu counterattacks. So what does Fu Gai do, the one who had won the Battle of Boju? Well, he decided to go back to the state of Wu in the midst of all of this, and guess what? Declared himself as king. Wow. That's not ideal. Now, not much is really known about this little insurrection, but what we do know is as follows. Fu Gai went back home and proclaimed himself king. King He Lü is forced to drop what he is doing in the Chu state and go home and crush this rebellion led by his own brother. And from what we know, Fu Gai gravely miscalculated how tied up his brother was in the Chu state. Because it seems that he was banking on this new Qin threat to hold his brother down. But well, it did not hold him down whatsoever. And within weeks, he was defeated and forced to flee, and flee to of all places, he fled to the Chu state. But King He Liu's brief you know, change of priorities allowed King Zhao of the Chu state to sneak back into his capital. So with that, the Chu state would sort of remain, though they would forever be a shadow, a really, really small shadow of what they once were. The Wu still held most of their land now, and they had no real army anymore. So the dreams of true hegemony were pretty much gone. But remember what I said earlier, the question of what now? Well, time to build a navy and look south to the state of Yue, Y-U-E. But wait, look, whoa, a navy? What? Since when? Since now. Because the Wu state under King He Liu is generally credited with developing the first Chinese navy. And like most things from ancient China, it was not just created by going through the motions. This navy was actually quite complex and had a myriad of different classes of ships. And these classes of ships were as follows. They were the Great Wing, Da Yi, the Little Wing, Xiao Yi, the stomach striker, Tu Wei, the castle ship, Lo Chuan, and the bridge ship, Chiao Chuan. And these ships were designed with land tactics in mind. No, not that they were amphibious and could fight in the ocean as they could on land, but the idea was that, okay, well, in a land battle, in a set-piece battle, we have chariots, we have infantry, we have siege craft. The ships were built with the same mentality, the Da Yi, the Great Wing were sort of designed to be the cavalry of the group, and the Xiaoyi were sort of described to be maybe more of the infantry. The Tu Wei, the Stomach Striker, were more to be built as a basic siege craft ship. And the idea was incredible for the first navy, for you to come out and have several classes of ships, that's incredible. And as I said, they're the first navy in China, so they're going up against nobody. Yeah, having a few ships against nobody is a wipeout, but imagine having a detailed and ornate navy. The Wu state is clearly the top dog here. Remember, though, how the Wu state had been essentially created by the Jin state to threaten the Chu state? Well, now it was the Yue state 
being backed and armed by what was left of the Chu state to threaten the Wu state. Seems like the circle of life for new spring and autumn period states. Big state backs you to harass another state, and the cycle continues. The U.S. state laid on the southern border of the Wu state, on the eastern coast of China. And yeah, as you probably have realized, our map just keeps getting bigger and bigger. Every episode, we're adding whole new swaths of land to the west, to the south, to the north. And the eastern Zhou now is starting to sort of resemble modern-day China. Though no, not in its entirety. The U.S. state, however was not as successful at breaking apart the Wu state as the Wu state were decades earlier against the Chu state. The Wu state, with a brand new navy and an impeccable land army, won battle after battle. But in 496 BC, on campaign in the U.S. state, King He Liu of the Wu state died. He was sometimes listed as one of the five hegemons, although I do not fall into that camp and many Chinese historians don't agree with that either. He had crushed the Chu state. He had brought about the first navy in all of ancient China and died at the Wu state's zenith. A zenith, by the way, that he almost handcrafted. This was, by the way, the man that hired Sun Tzu. After his death, he was succeeded by King Fu Chai of the Wu state. And hey, the good times just kept on rolling, because King Fu Chai eventually captured King Gou Jian, the king of the U.S. state, in around 490 BC. Oh, by the way, at this time in the year 490, the Persian army has just landed at Marathon, only to be beaten by the Athenians. Hmm. Just keeping you posted on what's going on outside of this, but back to the regularly scheduled programming. Throughout the late and mid-480s BC, King Fu Chai and the Wu state continued their dominance over the U.S. state. But here's the catch. King Fu Chai and the Wu state were never able to fully pacify and subjugate the U.S. state. Though that isn't on his mind right now, because right now, they're just winning battle after battle. So he eventually turned his navy and army to the Qi state on the north coast and conquers them swiftly in 484 BC. Look, there's no debating by now. They were truly the most powerful state in China up to that point. They were dominating everyone, everywhere. They had beaten the Chu state. They had beaten the U.S. state. Well, kind of beaten the U.S. state, and they had just beaten the Qi state. They had invented the navy. They had the strongest army. There was no stopping them. But at the same time of all of this, we turn to look at the Jin state. Because since 497 BC, they have been engaged in a brutal, multifaceted civil war. As mentioned last week, the duke there had lost all authority to the noble families, but now the noble families of the Jin were killing themselves off in civil war. But yeah, this war is not close to being over. But keep that in the back of your mind. So, back to the Wu state. All good things come to an end. And hubris never helps. I had told you that King Fu Chai had captured the king of the U.S. state, King Gou Jian. Did he execute him? No. 
Did he exile him? No. Did he just let him go? No. So what did he do then? Well, King Fu Chai instead made King Gou Jin his personal servant and slave. Did the people of the Yue state like this? Of course not. And it is probably a key reason as to why they never let the Wu state fully subjugate them. Because look, whoa, that's the way you treat our king? I would rather die than live under you at this rate, because if you enslave the king like that, imagine what's going to happen to us. And on top of that, do you think King Go Jin of the U.S. state was happy about being a humiliated slave and servant? Heck no. And do you think he spent every single waking moment of every day planning his revenge? Of course. The only thing that King Fu Chai could not do was let Go Jian go back home and rule. That would be a recipe for immediate disaster. Wait, I'm sorry, he, he what? In around 482 BC, King Fu Chai let Go Jian go under the premise of peace. How? Why? You can't just humiliate someone and then make them a slave and trophy but then just let them go back to a hostile state as that state's king. And it is no surprise that in 482 BC, while King Fu Chai of the Wu state was away at a large military conference, reinstated King Go Jian of the US state invaded the Wu state. Of course he did. At their zenith point, the Wu state let hubris get the best of them, and like the single harpoon blaster destroying the Death Star, the Wu were about to be destroyed themselves. Yes, King Fu Chai rushed back and held the capital city for nine years, all of which, by the way, he spent under siege. However, by 473 BC, the Wu had failed to recover from the initial U.S. state blow, swung by the rightfully pissed off King Gou Tian and the Wu state capitulated entirely. The city finally fell, King Fu Chai died, and King Go Jian of the U.S. state absorbed the entirety of the Wu state. Whoa, we just spent an episode and a half talking about the Wu state becoming the most powerful state in China up to that point, and all it took was one pissed off prisoner being let go, well, prisoner is one way to say it, he was a king, and one military conference later, he's dead. But what next though? Well, no one really knows. What? The US state just themselves hit their zenith and nobody knows what they did next? As disappointing as this may sound, the US state, for all we know, just kind of chills there, not doing much, never doing much, until they fall centuries later. All of this while the Jin state is engulfed in civil war, a war which we will cover more next week. Because the warring states period is fast approaching, because once the Jin state falls, the spring and autumn period is over. But they haven't fallen yet. However, while all of this has happened, the Wu state, 
the Chu state, and the Yue state have all proclaimed themselves as kings of China, only to beat each other down, really giving us a nice moose bouche of what's about to come. Next week, the Jin state is collapsing, but it's not done yet. And also, Confucianism is taking hold. But once the Jin state falls, the Warring States period is afoot. So thank you so much for listening. I'll see you all next week on the history of China.